Hey, we're the Try Guys, and this is No Denying It. I'm Zach Kornfeld. And I'm Ned Fulmer. You may have seen us on YouTube, trying to beat a professional at a hot dog eating contest. Swimming with sharks in the ocean. Simulating labor pains. Trying drag. Baking pies without a recipe. Riding dirt bikes in the desert. Fighting UFC fighters and so much more. That's our thing, trying stuff. And a lot of the time we don't get it right, but it is funny. Are we funny, Zach? <laughs> I hope so. Sometimes. <laughs> and in the process of flopping around and messing up, being vulnerable and tackling our insecurities, we learn a lot. That's kind of what No Denying It is about, too. But with a lot fewer antics, a lot fewer injuries. <laughs> uh, hopefully a lot less injuries. In this series, we've been trying to help you find your place in the movement to preserve our climate. And if anyone shows that a small spark can start a whole movement, it's Chibeze Ezekiel. The youth have a right to participate in the decision-making process at all levels, national, regional, global, Chibeze is an activist in Ghana who founded the Strategic Youth Network for Development, which gets young people involved in environmental action and policy. He's also the person who started a movement to prevent a coal plant from being built, and as a result, stopped one of the dirtiest fuels in the world from getting a foothold in Ghana. It's awesome. We got wind that the coal plant was going to be sited somewhere in the western region of Ghana. To Chibeze, a coal plant didn't make any sense. There's no coal in Ghana. So in addition to the new plant, they'd have to build a port just for importing coal from South Africa? That would endanger the local marine ecosystem and fishing economy, not to mention the effects of burning coal, the world's most polluting form of power generation. We moved to the community. We spoke to the chiefs, the elders, the women group, the youth groups, to educate them on the impact of coal plant. So we did all this behind the scenes, which we call the um, submarine approach, because it was a quiet approach, you know, where we're not making noise. Chibeze spoke with one queen mother, that's a really high-ranking female leader in Ghana, who'd heard that in another community, their rainwater had become contaminated by a similar project. People had broken out in rashes. She was worried that could happen to her community. She doesn't know what this coal plant is all about. So the question is, did government really do any serious engagement? So all those things became our ammunition in fighting a campaign. It seemed like the government hadn't gotten any buy-in from local leaders, despite being required to consult with the community on projects like this. You said that you have gone to engage NGOs and people in the community. Okay, as a matter of transparency and accountability, publish the list of the people you engage so we can be sure that the people were fully engaged. Uh, to date, that information has not been made available. Chibeze's group continued to build a movement educating people about the danger of coal and the value of renewable energy. They got youth activists together for marches with protesting and dancing. The best kind. Eventually, it was too much heat. Plans for the coal plant were canceled. And the government made a larger commitment to only build renewable energy facilities going forward. All because one person had his eye on the ball. Here's more of our conversation with Chibeze Ezekiel. He spoke with our producer, Rachel Ward. As part of our argument, what we said was that economically, it may be cheap to generate energy through coal, but there are other externalities. Because one, when coal plants are working, they emit gas into the atmosphere, and that could lead to air pollution. That could also lead to respiratory problems that people will suffer from. And that means that it's going to affect 
the budget or the Ministry of Health because they must respond to somebody's health consequences. So that's a cost element. So when they say it is cheap, what do they mean by it being cheap? So it is not cheap in the sense that they are trying to portray it. Again, we live in a country where communities live on water bodies, you know, for cooking, for domestic stuff. So if we end up depositing the coal ash into the water bodies, then what are we doing to the people who depend on the water bodies? These all have cost implications because you must get money to address the waste and sanitation problems. So again, it's not cheap, which they are failing to recognize. It's always so surprising when people don't consider all of the factors around a decision. It just seems so obvious when you're looking at it from the perspective of the community of people who are actually going to experience the effects. Were there other incentives that the government was considering as part of the reason to build the coal plant? Like, I guess getting a coal plant online would be fast, but were there other reasons why it was appealing? It was only two main reasons why government opted for coal plant. One, because it was cheaper to generate energy. And number two, that it creates employment for young people. And then the work that you did was to get out and talk to people about the sort of counter-argument to those two rationales. What did that actually look like? You're going out to talk to people. Were there any moments that like particularly stand out for you where things went really well or maybe things didn't go as well as you wanted them to? We had two plans in a, in a community. The first one was to go to the communities to introduce ourselves officially to the chiefs and the elders and tell them why we are in a community. That, okay, we've heard that government wants to build a coal plant, but we have come to educate them on a coal plant. So we agree on a day that we can come back to the community and then we can organize a workshop or a conference and use audiovisuals you know, or videos so that they can see you know, what coal plant is doing in other countries. And then after agreeing on a day and a time, we travel back to Accra and whilst we were preparing to come back to the community to hold that workshop, we got a call that the police stormed the house, that he's leading a certain group of people in a community, and that should we come to the community, then we stand, we are arrested. But actually, we were prepared. For us, it would have even enhanced our campaign. What would have been our crime? Is it a crime to educate chiefs and others on environmental issues? These are young people who are doing education and environment. You know, so for us, it was even a blessing in disguise. Right. Because of the the publicity would wind up presumably getting you more attention and support. So we're actually getting ready to be arrested for the first time in in my life. So we're actually in the process of traveling back to the community only for the Minister of Environment to announce publicly that government is no more going to be the co-plant. So we couldn't go back to the community because actually there was no need at that time. So you didn't get to be arrested. Yes. <laughs> like maybe a little disappointed. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you weren't arrested. And I'm also glad that you guys won. Thank you. One of the things that I think is so impressive about this campaign is that in 2015, the government is announcing we're going to build a coal plant. And then in 2017, the president is saying we're only going to use renewables from here on out. Obviously, your campaign seems to have been really effective, but what else changed in order to get the government to commit to only building new renewable facilities? We went all out, you know, because I recall even one government official, you know, calling me that they've seen our campaigns on social media and all that, you know, trying to put pressure on government and that, you know, we are rather promoting renewable energy. Government is party to the Sustainable Development Goals. You know, Goal 7 talks about clean and affordable energy. Sorry, let me just fill in a gap here. So for people who aren't familiar, Goal 7 of the SDGs, the SDGs 
are the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. And goal seven is ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. So we need to hold government accountable to respond or do things in line with goal seven of the SDGs. So we have all these instruments that we capitalize on to really remind government, make sure you meet those pledges. And one of the things we used again was that government was in Paris, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement when it was signed. So the question is, how can you go to Paris, you know, the COP, sign an agreement and come back home and say you want to build a coal plant? I mean, it was inconsistent. It was illogical. So I think that those were some of the forces we used, you know, against government and they had to backtrack on their coal plant. And we kept shouting, we kept campaigning that renewable energies are better. So if we look at the cost-benefit analysis, they realize that, okay, it is still possible to consider renewable energy in the context of their government obligation at a global level and Africa level, and also as a way to promote clean energy development. So in 2015, there was the crisis where power was intermittent, and then there was the proposal, and then your campaign was successful. How is the demand for energy working out now? What's the status of things these days? In terms of our energy mix, renewable energy is still 1% or below 1%, not very impressive. We are still relying more on thermal plants and some bits and pieces of hydro. We are hoping that in a few years to come, we're going to increase you know, renewable energy development and upscaling in Ghana. There are still some bottlenecks that we need to address as a country. That said, that some private sector operators on their own are shifting to renewable energy, having done their cost-benefit analysis. Because one, if you depend on the state, we're not too sure of the power reliability. And that is not sustainable for business operators. And therefore, they want to put in place measures that can guarantee them some constant power supply over a long period of time. So I have seen some companies who have solar energy on their building so that they can go off the national grid. They can save some cost. There's one shopping mall in Ghana, just to give a quick example, that runs completely on solar energy and 1.5 megawatts. So for them, that's power reliability. So a shop owner who rents a shop knows that, okay, at least my power is guaranteed. So those are some of the things we are seeing, some innovative ways people are going, you know, some are using biofuel, biomass, different renewable energy sources to have their own power generated and not only rely on national grid. So I think that with time, in the next two or three years, we're going to have some impressive increment in renewable energy usage in Ghana than we have today. That's exciting. One of the things that I've read is that your motto is leave no one behind. And I'm curious about what that means to you and how you sort of live or do that. Leave no one behind is the tagline of the SDGs. So we look at it from two ways. One, from the perspective of young people. That was what informed our advocacy work that the youth must not be left behind. So let's involve the youth in all decision-making process, the environmental issues. Beyond that, we have actually taken a step back to also carry children along with us. We even have an initiative called C4C campaign, which is Children for Climate Action. So we go to schools and engage children. We allow them to think wide, to come up with some climate solutions in their own small way. So you have children conceptualizing how the world should be like. So the idea is that once they become adults, they'll be better placed and well-informed, you know, to create the kind of environment that we need. What are some of the ideas that the kids have come up with when you've talked to them about what they want the world to be like? They express their idea by doing some sketches on paper, 
see the sun, you know, trees, monkeys, you know, that kind of environment, you know, having fun. Because today, in a land of biodiversity, we are losing some species. You know, years ago, we could have some butterflies around us, but today we don't see them as we used to. You know, so, but the child wants to see that, you know, that kind of environment, you know, having butterflies. They can only read that in books. So that is kind of some of the things we are trying to, you know, inculcate in them, that how do we bring back some of these things that, you know, they want to see, the things they are reading in the books, how can we actually bring them, you know, back to speed. For example, today we talk about tree planting as a way of dealing with climate change. Can they plant flowers and own the flowers at home? So as they grow, they can transfer that practice and that knowledge to now planting trees. So they can have that and, uh, and become the environmentalists that we need to sustain our environment. I'm wondering what the Ghanaian youth climate movement's relationship is like with other countries in Africa where coal plants are proposed or even beyond Africa. Are there groups that you advise and talk to about how to do a campaign against coal? Yes, we have some networks in the Africa region and also at a global level. The Lamu project in Kenya, uh, which was also cancelled. So we have a sister group or campaign group in Kenya led by my dear comrade. Uh, it's called Oma. Their campaign was also known as Decolonize. So we have to decolonize um, uh, Kenya. So they, they led a campaign. They actually went to court and the court ruled in their favor. So that coal plant, you know, has been truncated. Yeah, so at Africa level, uh, we have that relationship. Nigeria is also contemplating to build a coal plant. Again, I have colleagues there that are planning a campaign in that regard, as well as Malawi and also Zimbabwe. So these are some few African countries that are thinking of being a coal plant and we are trying to campaign or support our colleagues there to fight those kind of developments. What do you share as a successful strategy? Like, What sort of advice do you give or support do you give? Our approach, if you ask me, is what really helped uh, because we were not only shouting or making noise based on emotions. We were being constructive. We were being tactical. You know, we were providing viable options. We are not against development, but we choose a path that will bring more consequences than we anticipate. We all want to develop as a country. We all want to industrialize. We all want to have our business growing. But we think that coal will not do that, but rather renewable energy is a better option. More often than not, I have seen CSOs who campaign against a government initiative, but they fail to provide an alternative. The government wants a solution. If we provide a better alternative with justification, I think that uh, they can open up and, and listen to you. And I think that's what helped us. And that's the advice I give to all campaigners that, okay, not, don't only say no, but when you say yes to something, give a reason why your reasons are superior to government's reasons. That's really useful. And I think it's a good reminder because one of the things that we're hoping that listeners feel after they listen to these episodes is that there's something that they can do and a way that they can apply pressure. And I think keeping in mind that education and also solutions is really helpful. In the sense of committing to renewable energy, Ghana's commitment makes them sort of a leader. And I'm wondering what you think other nations can learn from this experience and 
just the example of Ghana making this choice not to have a coal plant? I want to limit this to Africa because um, we understand that China is looking for places to transfer their coal plants to because Africa has been tagged as an emerging market. Europe has developed Asia to a large extent. Now it's time for Africa to also industrialize. And when you want to industrialize, you need energy. You know, where you have the factories, companies coming up, etc. But now here we are in Europe and developed countries. Over the years, in a pre-industrial era or industrial era, they relied heavily on fossil fuel, nuclear energy, and coal plants. And that's where they are today. As Africans, must we also use the same approach as the developed countries use? We are saying no because it's going to exacerbate the already frightful impact of climate change that we are currently faced with. But let's look at a different alternative. And for us, we think that clean and affordable energy is a way to go. So we are trying to provide some ways by which African governments can still industrialize to the use of clean and affordable energy. And I think Ghana, we are, we are progressing. Recently, I was in a community that had no light for years, but they are now on solar, 30 kilowatts. And now they have power. The children can go to school, come back home and do their homework. And when I went there, they were so excited. So we are seeing progress in some of these stories. At the end of the day, we can have clean and affordable energy comprehensively being implemented in our country or in Africa, if you ask me. Yeah, that idea of skipping the like dirty step as a better way to achieve your economic goals. It makes so much sense to me. One of the things that I like to ask people about is um, what is like one obstacle that is in your way that you would like to see fall or what is one change that you would like to see happen in order to help with the work you're doing in terms of activating youth? In Ghana today, we are very fortunate to be recognized by our relevant state institutions. For example, we are actively involved in the development of our national adaptation plan. So we have been invited to be part of the process to also offer some ideas or some ways to develop the plan and to implement. We've also been involved in the review of our nationally determined contributions, which is one of the requirements in the Paris Climate Agreement. There are challenges that they are are faced with, but they are not able to find the appropriate means to address those challenges. Let me give you one or two specific examples. We often hear government or parliament giving tax incentives to companies when they come to Ghana as a way to encourage them to establish and for them to also be able to minimize the initial operating cost. So the question is, when it comes to young green entrepreneurs, can government also give them those similar tax incentives that if for the next two years, don't pay your tax so they can have enough money to grow your business. When you grow your business and you start employing people, then you can be in a better position to also pay your taxes. So we have all these national opportunities, but they are not youth responsive. So we want to help bridge that gap. So whatever benefit a big corporation is getting for the state, then the young person who is an entrepreneur must also benefit equally. They must also see the benefit of these incentives we always give out in multinationals. So in doing that, we are promoting their business. And when we promote their business, they will end up employing more young people. When they employ more young people, it will reduce the burden on government when it comes to youth unemployment. And government will even end up having more taxes. So these are some of the practical solutions we are bringing on board, not only to address climate change, but also to boost our economy by promoting the young green entrepreneurs. We've got the same challenges here in the U.S. I think that's probably a pretty international challenge that multinational corporations wind up getting a lot of benefits and individual entrepreneurs have a lot of trouble getting things launched. 
You've given us a lot of really good advice. There's so much here for people to take back to their own communities. But because you are talking to so many people right now, I wonder if for those people who are like hungry for ideas to start acting against climate change, do you have anything that you'd like them to know or a piece of advice or a strategy that you think folks should implement? I will share what has worked for us and is still working for us. What we do is that one, we don't work in isolation. We work in harmony with other like-minded people. So in 2019, we established a platform known as a Youth in Natural Resources and Environmental Governance Platform. So it's a platform that brings together young people in Ghana who are working on different environmental actions so that we can learn and share best practices. It also helps us to embark on joint advocacy in a concerted manner. So we have a large membership of almost 160 members on that platform where we engage dialogue, share ideas, so we can make the impact that we want to make. The second approach, we also don't work in a fragmented manner. So whatever we do, we look at the country's interest. What is the national climate change policy of Ghana saying? What is government saying when it comes to our indices? So that whatever action plan we take, whatever intervention we embark on, is responding or contributing to government's own climate change policy or our indices. I will, I will recommend that to anybody who is a climate change activist, that even at the local level, there are local government structures. You can go to them, look at their plan as a local assembly or local county or whichever country you live in, and then see how your intervention can also contribute to what they are doing. So in so doing, you can always know that you are also contributing directly to what is happening at the local level, or if you like, even at the national level. So that's the approach that we have adopted on this one. So work in collaboration with other groups that have a similar platform and then integrate your work with whatever planning is happening at a government level, local or, or national. Absolutely. The effect of climate change, it requires an emergency response. I have personally witnessed communities completely submerged by the sea because of sea level rise. I have seen farming because of climate change impact. So there's a direct impact on the livelihoods of people I think that it is high time that we treat climate change with the agency that it needs, just as we are doing for COVID-19. When COVID-19 broke initially, there was drastic measures put in place. For example, suddenly our president came on television and announced that churches have to be closed down, schools must be closed down, nobody should go to work. So when it comes to climate change, can we have that kind of agency? Not necessarily shutting people down at home, but where are the resources? Even though we are making progress, it is very slow and we are not, I'm not seeing it being moving as fast as it's supposed to be. I mean, after all, we are attending COP26, which means this is the 26th time that climate change negotiations have been happening. Yeah, I think that we need to really do something better and faster in dealing with climate change. If Chibeze hadn't caught wind that the coal plant was in progress, he wouldn't have been able to begin his submarine campaign. That's why paying attention to what's going on in local government and sharing what you learn is so important. So big, irreversible decisions like building dirty fossil fuel plants aren't made without community input. You can do this by becoming a watchdog. Look for watchdog organizations where you live that go to meetings. 
read documents and show up to hearings to watch public officials make decisions and let them know you're paying attention. Watch live streams of local meetings like the zoning board, the utilities commission, or the county council. Look, this kind of work, it's not thrilling. <laughs> but dangerous decisions for our climate are often buried deep within the details with the hopes that we'll be too bored to notice. So channel your inner try guy. And when you don't understand something that's going on in local governance, ask questions. I ask a lot of questions. Sure do. I don't know nothing, mm -hmm. but I ask questions and that's often the best way to learn is to admit that you don't know. If there's something that seems fishy, start pulling at the strings and see what you find. Like that little thread on the back of your sweater. Mm -hmm. Get comfortable with calling your public officials and asking them to explain their decisions and with telling them what solutions they should be pursuing to reduce our fossil fuel dependency. Big industries might have lobbyists and money on their side, but we have the numbers. Our power comes from the pressure we apply to public officials and from organizing in our communities. There's this thing called a community solar garden. It works the same way community gardens do, except instead of pooling resources and labor to plant a garden, you build solar and share the energy. That's cool. You can't grow a garden in one day, but you can plant one seed. You can make a connection with one neighbor that you didn't know. You can make one phone call to a public official. You can go to one community meeting that you've never been to before. You can pick one agency and read their annual report. You can follow one politician and track their voting record and let them know when they're not making good choices for our climate. Because our power comes from holding the powerful accountable. There's no denying it. Thanks for listening to No Denying It. If this is your first episode, we've got nine more you can listen back to. You can find them at news.un.org. We've got advice and inspiration for climate action from across the globe to help you find your place in the movement. And if you've been with us from the start, thank you so much for listening to this first ever UN Climate Action Podcast. As the UN Secretary General says, we need every voice at the table, but words are not enough. We hope the voices in No Denying It will inspire you to act today. Thanks for listening to our voices. What can you do with yours? Woo! No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast, is produced by UN News and Good To Do Today. Our producer at UN News is Connor Lennon, and Natalie Hutchison is our promo and distribution manager. Our producers at Good To Do Today are Emma Jacobs, Jay Venables, and Rachel Ward. Our managing producer at UN News is Matthew Wells, and our executive producer is Mita Hosali. Keith Frund and Braden Alexander are our audio engineers, and our theme song is by Memory Palace, courtesy of Marmoset. Additional music from Artlist. Many, many thanks to Julia Barton, Miles Bonsignore, Paula Bustamante, Fang Chen, Martina Donlan, Bertista Jane, Erica Mendez, Regina Murkova, Robert Nashovsky, June Park, Ezra Sergi, Sam Tracy, Matilde Erfolino, freesound.org, and the UN Environment Program. Find more stories about climate action from UN News at news.un.org. <laughs>